every 15 to 27-year-old male here who is passing through the zenith of his sex drive and trying to figure out how to live. This message is for everyone over 75 years old who's lost the edge of a sense of purpose on life. If you're pressed really hard, you'd say, well, you know, I guess I'm just waiting out death. That seems to be the next great event. feel like you have no purpose. This message is for ladies under 30 years old, under 40 years old, under 60 years old. What age should we put on it? Who are being objectified by a sexually charged culture. They're trying to figure out how to dress and how to act whether to just give in to the cultural tide and go forward. This message is for fathers in their 30s who are in the midst of a quest to rise at work and accomplish those next things and be recognized and move forward. Young fathers who are asking questions when everything seems to quiet down for half a second. What really matters? What ought I reach for in life? This message is for mothers juggling everything that there is to be at home with children or be at home with children and be in the marketplace in some way. Stay with marriage and watch finances. This message is for you. This message is for those who uh, wonder about church. Yeah, you're here this morning. I'm so grateful that you are here. Some of you church is kind of... uh, convenience store on the Audubon of the good life. Just get off the exit, a little fuel for the tank, you know, buy some cashews, a Coke, get back in the car and keep driving on the Audubon of the good life. And oh yeah, well, you know, on the weekends we do that church thing. This message is for you. This message is for every single person who's concluded that their life could never matter to God. It's for everyone who is convinced that the adventure of pursuing wealth and notoriety and influence and prideful achievements is much more alluring than to pursue Jesus Christ and righteousness in the kingdom of God. This message is for all who feel unnoticed by God, who all along had invited us in to gospel life. Come with me to Romans chapter 6. I want to read it to you this morning, the first 14 verses. We've already gone through some of this, but we'll celebrate verses 12, 13, and 14 this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, we are going through as a church family on Sunday mornings this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and chapter 5 talk about the glory of the gospel of grace. Paul unpacks it. We have sinfully rebelled against our Creator and walked away from Him. We are all, whether we are religious or Jewish or a Gentile, we are all separated from God because of our sin and put in the peril of God's just judgment. But God, in Christ, invites us to believe His promise of salvation offered in Jesus Christ and in believing, be giving, and in believing, receive the gift of eternal life. Receive forgiveness. Receive the kind of righteousness imputed to us that makes us acceptable before God. So it is true, based on the promise of God, that you and I can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Now you say, Eric, what does a life of peace holding on to the gift of righteousness, what does that look like? That's Romans 6 and 7. And we're at Romans 6 this morning. I want to go three different directions. First, all can be captivated, all are captivated by something. Apart from Christ, folks are captivated by things apart from Christ. That's what I want to talk about first, looking at verse 12 and verse 13. Then I want to come back and review what he's talked about. Two weeks ago, we went through Romans 6, 1 through 11. We'll speed right through that. You know the three big words you need to lay hold of for Romans chapter 6? No, reckon, yield, or the English standard words are going to be no, consider, and present. So we're going to be looking at those. Since we've already looked at know and reckon, uh, consider, uh, our big focus this morning is on what it means to present ourselves to God. That's Romans 6, 12, 13, and 14. This matters, so let's listen. Number one, life apart from knowing Jesus Christ is captive to ungodlike pursuits. I think of Martin Luther, who at the Diet of Worms said, 
to the great potentate in Europe before whom he stood in answer to his question, Martin, are these your books? Yes. Are you willing to recant? And he said, I cannot recant. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And I will not recant. I cannot recant. What is your conscience captive to this morning? There's a song a few years ago, a Christian contemporary song that was recorded that had a line in it, captivated. And then the, the keyboard, nah, nah, nah. it kind of had a nice jingle to it. But it was about our hearts being captivated with Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what's true is our hearts are given to captivation. Uh, the question is not, are we captivated by something? The question is, what are we captivated by? Now, as you sit here this morning, just us kids, but opening our hearts before our Lord, what has captivated our hearts this morning? And what ought captivate the follower of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 12. I've read it to you already. Let's consider two matters. First, sin is the most pervasive influence in the life of a person who does not follow Jesus. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Apart from Christ, our hearts become entrenched in sin. It becomes a way of life. It's a reflex. It's our default mode for living. We never go to that school how to sin. We don't have to. Adam is our forefather. We inherit that. That's like breathing to us. The gravitational pull away from the law of God. We find that natural. Now I wrestled with the term to use in point A. I used the term pervasive. But I pondered for a while, is that the right term? Sin is the most pervasive influence in the life of a person who does not follow Jesus. Is it pervasive or is it persuasive? Sin is the most persuasive influence in the life of the person who does not follow Jesus. And I settled out of court to realize, you know what, I think either could be used. Because sin is both pervasive in terms of its all-encompassing hold it has on our flesh, but it is also very persuasive, and some are seduced by its persuasion. Now, he comes to the term reign. Look at verse 12. He uses that verb. Reign. Do not let sin reign. What's that term? Well, it's the, the noun form of this verb is the term for kingdom, a place of rule, a dominion, an expression of authority. So you put that in an action, in a verbal form, and it becomes dominion, rule, the reign of something. By the way, what is king over your heart? What is king over mine? What is reigning? Notice that our mortal flesh has fundamental allegiances to the kingdom of unrighteousness. That's how we are constituted and find ourselves situated, heirs as we are of Adam's character. Now, our mortal flesh, mortal, it's temporary. We're weak and frail. 
What does the psalmist say? You know our frame. You know we are but dust. We don't last very long. We're weak. One of the expressions of the weakness of our flesh is we are addicted to the dictates of our flesh. Uh, We are given to the gravitational poles of our mortal flesh. That is passing. He uses the plural term passions. Our mortal flesh is given to these passions. It's a fascinating term. It's the term for desires, natural, God-given desires, twisted by sin. Passions, but then he uses a prefix that intensifies it. It's like passions on steroids. Or if we had a rheostat meter on that term, you know, I'd say, all right, now turn the rheostat meter up right now. Get it at its brightest point because it's intensifying this allusion to the passions that we have, that our flesh is full of it in an intensive way and we're driven around by our passions, called by some our animal instincts. Now, apart from grace, we are hardwired to break God's law as we give ourselves to the passions of our existence in our body. The gravitational pull takes us not toward righteousness, uh, but it takes us the other way. Now, a dear congregant asked a really good question two weeks ago. She said, are you going to talk about the Christian and sin? Eric, you confuse me. Because I said, when it comes to this area, that I'm, I'm pretty earthy in my theological understanding, it goes something like this. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. If it says it's a duck and doesn't walk like a duck or doesn't talk like a duck, no matter what it says, it's not a duck. Well, that sent a shiver up her spine. I, 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 I appreciated the shiver. I think uh, uh, we all need to ping and open our heart to the Lord and wonder where are we Uh, by the way my my own notion there's not time to develop it this morning is we're giving up way too early on this stuff of holiness and I realize that Baptist people are not you know a part of any you know holiness movement but we're giving up way too early when I read the New Testament you know what it says God has called us to be a duck and ducks act like ducks and when we don't act like ducks Maybe the reason we don't act like ducks is God never made us a duck. Because when God makes you a duck, you act like a duck. But does that mean, Eric, that a Christian never sins? Let's talk about this. Let's put two poles down and argue that the whole Christian life is worked out in the midst of these two. Pole number one is this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, I love testimonies. I just don't believe all of them. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm too surly and, and, and getting crusty. Uh, but um, I love wonderful professions of faith. And I accept them with a spirit of charity and believe them. Uh, but um, I also keep my eyes open to see where the faith and how the faith is working in the life. I need that again. Please keep the pull up. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There are all kinds of people out there saying, oh, yeah, Eric, I know Jesus. That's great. I'm for knowing Jesus. By the way, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to receive him as your Savior. There's nothing more glorious in life than knowing Jesus. 
But I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. And yet this verse says, if we say we have fellowship, oh, yeah, Eric, I have fellowship with Jesus, Jesus and I. I've literally had, had guys tell me, Jesus and I, man, we are really on good terms. If we say we have fellowship with him, no, please stay on the first slide. Thank you. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It means if you say, hey, me and Jesus, I received Christ, I profess faith in Christ, me and Jesus are on good terms, and you do not practice the life of Jesus, you know what the scripture says? In stark terms, you're a liar. You're a liar. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Is the truth about the righteousness of Jesus being practiced by your life? Now, let's think of the other poll. That's one poll. There's another poll. Just four verses later. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, again, we're not in much of a holiness tradition. I grew up in one in which people would offer testimonies. It would sound something like this. Yeah, God's been at work in my life and I haven't sinned for five years. After the service, I always wanted to buttonhole that person and say, may I have permission to speak to your wife? Because <laughs> notice what the Bible says. If we say we have no sin, we lie and do not to do the truth. So nobody's sinlessly perfect. But here's the deal. Baptist people are given up way too early. And if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us. That's present progressive tense. Keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. All of that is true. But 1 John 1, 9 is not given in the scripture as an excuse to live however you want and then just hit the Baptist confession booth of, uh, you know, once around the track on uh, 1 John 1, 9 and then you're okay. Uh, There are other forms of that kind of thinking in Roman Catholic thought. So between those two poles, then, the whole Christian life is worked out. Next slide. Here's gospel living. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you stop reading there, you'll die a thousand deaths and realize, I can't, it's all dependent upon me. I, I can't do it. Nobody can. There's a comma. Then... For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's both. It's not one or the other. That's gospel living. And between those two poles, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. If we say we have not sinned, we lie and do not do the truth. Between those two poles, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the deal. As we keep walking with Jesus and the Spirit of God works in our life, we come more fully over time to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Now, how's it going where you are? Progressively being made like Jesus. Are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Why? Are you the same person you were five years ago? Now, the second thing to consider then Life apart from knowing Jesus Christ is captive to ungodly pursuits. Look at verse 13. Living apart from Christ, we naturally give ourselves to unrighteous living. Now, we animate life through the body. If you can stand it, just think with me a little bit. Plato got things messed up, the Greek philosopher. He had this idea that the body is evil, it's bad, but the spirit is good. 
And that kind of leached over into Christianity and how the gospel was taught. So you got through the early years of Christianity some uh, really bad views of the body. You know, our body is absolutely incredible. Its systems and how God has made it, it's just extraordinary. It's amazing. Our body is good. But born into the Adam tradition, it is susceptible to sin. There is the presence of indwelling sin in our body. That doesn't mean our body is evil and we should flagitate our body and we should get into asceticism. Okay, Eric, I'm not going to eat. You know, George Whitfield fasted so much trying to find Jesus, thinking that that was going to be his means to find him. In the 18th century, he almost starved himself to death and then realized I had to eat and just lay hold of the grace of God and struck home with salvation as God opened his heart. Our body is good. And we can in turn, having been given this wonderful body, we can offer it to the Lord. Now, we animate life through a body. Everything I've ever done in life, I've done in my body. And I'm not bifurcated between a soul and a body. They're they're like separate. I'm going to give up this body. This is evil. I'm going to give the evil up. I'm a soul-bodied unity, perfectly in harmony together. But everything I do in life, I do in my body. I actually have consciousness of the world through the life I live with my body. In fact, you know you are present in the world because your back hurts now as you sit there. You know, uh, you can feel it uh, in the pew. And we are conscious of the world through the senses of our body. But we are conscious of God through the Spirit of God that lives in the life of every believer. And then we are conscious of ourself because we are made in the image of God and as long as we have our right mind we are conscious that we exist and through the Holy Spirit conscious that God exists and through our body that we animate life through we're conscious that the world exists now when we die and let this encourage you if you know Jesus Christ as your savior when we die we don't lose consciousness of ourself When we die, we don't lose consciousness of God. That will be maintained clear through death into the presence of God where our faith will become sight. We will lose consciousness of the world animated through our body as our spirit leaves our body. Remember Jesus, the last thing before he died on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. So don't take a negative view of the body. We just need to and this is coming, we need to offer our bodies to the Lord and let the righteousness of God that we've been given as a gift begin to practically seep into how we animate life in our bodies. The mastery of our body and its members is part of the challenge and call to a holy life. Think of 1 Corinthians 6.20. You've been bought with a price. Yes, we have, Paul. Good Friday cost a lot. Now, what does that mean? Therefore... Glorify God in your body as you live, reflect in the way that you live the ransom price that was paid on Good Friday. First Thessalonians 4 4, for this is the will of God that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Is that where we are? We are either master over our body's appetites 
or those appetites master us. Eating, sleeping, our sexual lives, our thought lives, what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, what we see with our eyes, what we listen to with our ears. Where are we? Now, secondly, what are then the mechanics of living for Jesus? Eric, unpack this. I listened to your introduction. That was interesting, but now help me live. What are we supposed to do? Here's the deal. This is two weeks ago. First, we joined the union. That's Romans 6, 1 through 10. The key word is going to be no. It's used twice in verse 3 and in verse 6. The Apostle Paul goes through baptism. We identify with this union we have with Jesus Christ, his life, perfect life, fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law, his death on our behalf as our sacrifice, his burial, and his resurrection. We identify with our union with Christ. We anchor our understanding of ourselves in the soil of what God has revealed about how we relate to Jesus Christ. Is that your understanding of yourself? A union, identity, and association with Jesus. It informs our perception of ourselves. For you have died and your lives are hidden with Christ in God. I love the stowaway sense of Colossians 3.3. Now the second thing he goes to, not only join the union, that's something we know about ourselves in Christ. We change our view of life's purpose. Look at verse 11. So you must consider, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive into Christ. How we view ourselves shapes our living. The apostle Paul steers us to shape ourselves in a particular matter. Consider, reckon yourselves. What we believe about ourselves forges behavioral outcomes. When we reckon ourselves dead to sinful behavioral patterns and alive to Christ, we live differently. We are alive, alert, responsive to righteousness in a way that before we knew Christ, we were not. Can it not be said that Cincinnati, Ohio, this morning is alive to all that's going on in the Cincinnati Bengal Empire? All that they're, they're all fired up. You, you drive, everything's orange in Cincinnati now, of course. We're all waiting to see what color it'll be tomorrow, you know. But they're alive to Christ. Preacher even drug out, you know, 20-year-old orange sweater to wear, you know, today because I tried to buy a, 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 for months a, a, a really nice, you know, button-down shirt with a bingo thing on it. And, uh, you know, the Fanatics has been out of it for months. You know, I keep looking, looking. Are you, you get those shirts yet? Cincinnati is alive to the Bengals. The text is asking us, Calvary Church, are you alive to righteousness? That's what it means to know Jesus. To be dead once. Who cares about that? To be fully alive and alert and responsive to it now. Now finally then, how do we master the challenge of living for Jesus? Oh, Eric, I'm glad you got here. I want to know this. Look at verse 14. Let's start there. Let's dig out three gems from the treasure trove of cues for living for Jesus in this passage. Gem number one, we must live in the right era. Era. In the right epoch. We must live in the right era to follow Jesus. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion. There's that word again, that rule, that reign. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
Now, there have been different eras for access to music. The transistor radio. Remember my grandfather talking about, you know, they got a radio and hovering around for various programs and sorting out Fibber McGee's closet and everything else in those old programs and listening to music on the radio. That was how it was once delivered. Then we got out of that era. We went to vinyl records, had that needle going around, and that was real good until somebody scratched a record and it would mess it all up. Then we got to eight-track tapes. Now, when I was in high school, I bought, saved my money, I bought a quadraphonic stereo system, four speakers. I put them up on the walls of my bedroom. I had the misfortune of having a shared wall with my mom and dad's bedroom. But anyway, I put it there. My mom never appreciated the level of music that I felt like I needed to have out of my quadraphonic music. I remember there's one eight-track tape it's really cool. I've been trying to remember what the track of music was, but I can't. Uh, but it's, it's this cool album I had. And a guy fired up a motorcycle. And he started driving, but it would pass it from speaker to speaker in my room. And he'd ride around my room like that. So I keep playing that song, just listening to that. Going, I mean, it was really cool. And in the day, it, it was it. That was the epoch, the era of the eight track. Now, Jay argues, Mounts, that's about where you are. That's about as far technology as you've gotten. You're about the eight-track level. And, and he, he's right because Fred Flintstone's not very good at this stuff. But then we went to cassettes and we went to CDs. And now we're, we're, we're streaming stuff. You guys have passed way past me. You can listen to anything in real time in the moment that you want. Just dial it up on your phone and go. This is Paul's point. Don't live in the wrong era. In the era of the law, all it did was beat you down and remind you what a failure you were. Christ fulfilled the law, didn't do away with it. He fulfilled the law, took our sin, all of our law breaking upon himself. We're living in a new era of grace. Paul is saying, live in the right epoch. This is a new era. Grace gives us capacities that we didn't have when we lived in the state of nature. We're not in nature any longer. We are in grace by the grace of God that swallowed us in. All week we've been listening to this discussion that's finally concluded. And it appears President Biden, in order to get those uh, German tanks to Ukraine, agreed to send some M1 tanks. Because here's what Ukraine is saying. If you'll just give me the right resources, we'll take care of the rest. We don't have the resources to fulfill the demands of the theater of war right now, but if you'll give us the resources. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just I'm trying to illustrate this point because something glorious happened when we were brought into Jesus. But Ukraine is saying, if you give us tanks, we'll take care of the battlefield. All we need is the resources to get it done. Now, the latest is, plus now we need some F-18s. But anyway, uh, um, and that wasn't a statement about what we ought to do. In Christ, we have been given resources that we didn't have in former epochs. In the law, it couldn't be done. But now we've been given resources in Christ. And in the power of the gospel, you and I are equipped to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. And that's why giving up way too early on Christ's likeness is not only a shame, it's a dishonor to Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and what should be going on in your life and in mine. 
F.F. Bruce said the law demanded obedience, but grace supplies the will and the power to obey. Hence, grace breaks the mastery of sin as law could not. We must live in the right era to follow Jesus. Are you living in the right era? Am I? Secondly, oh no, before I leave that, Stuart Briscoe, who, who just died, a real wonderful man. I love Stuart and Jill Briscoe. Uh, he was a, uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin at Elmbrook Church for years, had an extraordinary ministry. Uh, those English guys preaching in America, they just, you know, they're it. They can read the phone book and people think they're filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it just sounds so cool. But he had substance too. He was a Marine with the Marines in England and they sent him to Korea during the Korean War. And he had a commanding officer who was a tyrant who held his iron fist and finger over, just pounded people in the ground. And if he would walk in a barracks, I mean, you know, the, the fear of God would fall on everybody in the barracks because he was such a tyrant. And it just became a reflex because he was living under that guy. He walked in, you know, everybody's standing in the tension. They're saluting and uh, they're doing everything that they're supposed to do. He so looked forward to mustering out of the Marines. Got through the Korean War, mustered out. And of all things, he's walking down the street one day and looks. There's a commanding officer. But he found this inbred response. Suddenly, his blood pressure took off running. Suddenly, his heart began to palpitate in his chest. And he thought, he felt his spine begin to get erect. And then he thought to himself, what in the world am I doing? I'm not even in the Marines anymore. I'm not living there. I'm living in a whole new day where that's behind me. And I need to live like that's behind me. And I'm in a new era And that's Paul's point here. And so the question is, are we living in such an era? Now, the second piece of treasure here is we present ourselves to God. Now, this is going to be a big word. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But here's a word again. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You say, Eric, isn't there a present, big present deal in Book of Romans? Absolutely there is. This is like base camp for Mount Everest when we get to Romans 12.1. Therefore, I beseech you in light of the mercies of God. What in the world's the mercies of God? That's Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He takes an excursus, and we'll take it, 9, 10, and 11, and talks about Jewish people and God's gospel intent for them, then comes back in chapter 12 and finishes strong, but he comes back like this. Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. That's the verb. That's the here. That life becomes the presentation of a sacrifice to God. My life is a poured out drink offering to God. I used to pray with the guy on Tuesday mornings for years. And every morning he closes prayer. Now, Lord, help me be a poured out drink offering to you today. I love that prayer. It, it rings in my conscience even today. That's the word. Presenting our life as a living sacrifice. I love Swindoll said, you know, the trouble with a living sacrifice is, of course, it's always crawling off the altar. And isn't that true? The Christian life is placing yourself at the disposal of Christ and his righteousness. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. 
This is Mary. Young, what was she, 16? Who knows? She was young. Okay, Mary, here's the deal. You're going to be with child. I'm not married. Yeah, that's the deal. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit's going to overtake you. The, the child's going to come to your womb, and you'll live in scandal the rest of your life being thought of as an unvirtuous woman. What was her response? Presenting herself to God. Be it done unto me according to your will. Wow. This is Eli telling Samuel, Samuel, you go back there and you say, Lord, speak. Your servant's listening. That's presenting your life to the Lord. Is that us? Open-handedly giving ourselves, our bodies, the animation of our life to the Lord. The logic of the passage goes something like this. We are not redeemed to keep living in sin and to keep presenting ourselves to indulgence. We've been redeemed to present ourselves to God for a completely different kind of life. Howard Hendricks, my seminary professor, prayed for his dad to come to Christ his whole life. His dad was a veteran army guy, spent his career there. Late in life, his dad was moved by the Spirit of God to receive Christ. Howard Hendricks was with him, and they knelt to pray, and he prayed to receive Christ, and he got up, and Dr. Hendricks said, I'll never forget it. He got up. He stood to attention. He saluted, and he looked at his son, and he said, I want you to know that I am now living under a new commanding officer, which was kind of his genre for life. Wow. If you're betting on conversion, you'd say, hey, I think that sticks. Because that's what conversion means. It means presenting your life to one who offered up his life to us. That's the Christian life. That's gospel life. It's a daily discipline. Now, the third gem is we understand that a life of righteousness is a powerful tool of influence in God's hands at work in our world. Look at verse 13. We're going to be watching for the word instruments. Do not present your members to sin as instruments used in the plural. It's used for the weapons of the world. This is a plural term as a tool for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments or tools for a purpose, righteousness. You know, a prize fighter can actually, if uh, he uh, uh, beats somebody up uh, in public in a skirmish, he can actually be accused of assault with a deadly weapon because he has trained his fists as a fighter to be a weapon of conflict. A weapon, an instrument. You know, a fine craftsman with the right tool can do extraordinary things. You ever watched an... an, an Amish fine craftsman do something with wood in his wood shop. Oh, it's something to behold. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, he, he, he had the right tool. And the utilization of that tool ends in the glory of the product of what he's done. That's what Paul's driving home. He's saying, look, don't take your bodies 
how we animate life and give them to indulgence, but give them to God because an instrument in his hand offered to him is powerful and influential. Of all people, Robert McNamara, who was the first non-Ford person to be the president of Ford Motor Company, Robert McNamara said this. He was also the, he's famous for the Vietnam War and being the Secretary of Defense from, for John F. Kennedy from 1961 to 1968. He said this, Robert McNamara, one solitary, God-centered, God-intoxicated man can do more to keep God's love alive and his presence felt in the world than a thousand half-hearted, talkative, busy men living frightened, fragmented lives of quiet desperation, end of quote. That's pretty good for Robert McNamara. Henry David Thoreau said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And it's a takeoff of that. Henry Varley said this, the world is yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. That's the word. See, we're not into yielding. If we have a choice between giving the right away and yielding, we will always go for giving the right away. We want our way. Here we are to yield ourselves, yield our way to God and live out the life he's called us in our body as we present our lives and where we go with our bodies to him. D.L. Moody heard Varley say that. The world is yet to see a man. We're yet to see what God can do through a man who's totally yielded to him. And that simple shoe salesman from Boston, D.L. Moody, said, by the grace of God, I want to be that man. By the way, his influence became global in Western culture. Wow. Do we have any idea of the powerful influence of a life yielded to Jesus Christ? You see, you get a young man dreaming when he's 18 about everything he's going to accomplish, and I love their dreams. I love to be next to them. I also love to help them realize them. You get a young lady thinking about the next 50 years of her life and what could be. Are we helping any of them realize the extraordinary glory of day by day, dollar cost, offering our body and our lives to the Lord and watching how he picks us up as an instrument in his right hand and his left and he uses us in extraordinary ways. Who are we at Calvary? When I was at Cedarville, Jack Wurtson was speaking in chapel, the head of Word of Life. By the way, when Jack Wurtson died, and I have a good friend who married into the family. He married uh, Jack's son's uh, daughter and has spent the last 40 years in Brazil. He's like the James Dobson of Brazil. But anyway, uh, so I watched his funeral because I love Dave. And I watched Jack Wurtson's funeral. I, I was struck with the influence of, of, of this man. I mean, global influence. He and Harry Ballback, the influence was extraordinary. But he was speaking in chapel back when I was 20 years old and uh, at Cedarville College. And, you know, you, when you're in college and you're 20, you know about everything there is to know. And um, as you're developing in your godliness, you're about as holy as you're ever going to be. Uh, uh, by the way, I thought I was real holy, and then I got married and realized I was on the wrong track. I wasn't a good thought. I was so, I, 
you know, marriage introduces you to selfishness. I was sitting in chapel listening to Jack Wurtz, and he got ready to close a message. And, I, you know, Jack was a simple man, straightforward. And he starts, starts through it. All right. Who here this morning wants to give their mind to Jesus? I thought, what? Who here this morning wants to give their eyes to Jesus? Come on. This is corny fundamentalist. Who wants to give their ears to Jesus? Who wants to give their hands to Jesus? And I started imagining how we should close the service. We usually sang a song, and I thought, well, I'll tell you what would be appropriate close after this is M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. This isn't very sophisticated. This isn't very thoughtful. Give your body to the Lord. Give your hands to the Lord. Give your legs to the Lord. Give your feet to the Lord. Where are you going to go? I thought of those selfish, proud thoughts this week when I looked at this passage. You know what this passage says? This mortal flesh is temporary. It gravitates towards sin. And God has built us for a new life. And he asks us every day to present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice to live for him. Now, where are we at Calvary? And what's he saying to us this morning? Let's bow our heads and let's talk. Then we'll go. Father, now in these moments of response, I pray that you would speak to hearts. You'd encourage the faint-hearted. You would affirm the obedient. You would arrest the attention of those tolerating sin. At the self-same time, I'm making this profession of faith in Christ. Lord, make us more clear ducks, more consistent ducks in growing toward the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And Lord, while our heads are bowed, we are responsive before you this morning. And I just want to give the opportunity to respond. So Lord, Holy Spirit, in genuine, authentic ways, work in this moment, I pray. Now, if you're here this morning and there is some facet of your life and how you animate life through your body, your mind, how you think, your eyes, what you see, your ears, what you hear, your tongue, how you speak, your heart, what you yearn for, your hands, what you handle, your feet, where you go. If God has spoken to your heart this morning and you just want to say with Samuel, Lord, I've heard you and here I am. Take me forward. I want to give you the opportunity to stand right now and then be seated. Right now is the opportunity for you to stand if God has spoken to your heart. Thank you. Stand and then be seated. The Lord knows. Others? Lord, this is not a gimmick. It's a moment to say to you, we love you, and we want to live like it, and we're weak. We need you. Help us. Thank you that you do and that you're here and that you're pleased with those who have stood this morning to make this statement to you. Continue your work in our lives, Lord. 
for any who've never received Christ as Savior, but since the movement of the Spirit of God opening their heart, Lord, bring them to faith in this moment as they quit trusting in themselves and come to rely on Jesus, our Lord, as Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.